Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium, Episode 21, The Vandal War. Last time, we saw the centre of Constantinople reduced to blood and ashes in the Nika Revolt. Having successfully put down a serious challenge to his rule, the Emperor Justinian felt certain that it was his duty his destiny, to push on and restore the Roman Empire to its former glory. The reconstruction of the capital will have to wait for another episode, because only a year after Belisarius slaughtered rioters in the Hippodrome, Justinian handed him the responsibility of recapturing the province of Africa. Africa at this point meant essentially modern Tunisia and a slice of Algeria. As you all know by now, the German tribe of the Vandals had captured Carthage in 439 and had then used the fleet they found in its harbour to conquer Sardinia, Corsica and the Balearics, before sacking Rome and raiding Greece. Peace had then been established, by treaty, during the reign of Zeno but tensions had remained between Byzantium and the Vandal Kingdom. Beyond the obvious geopolitical concerns, it was the issue of religion which had been the most frequent cause of angry letters. The majority of Vandals were Aryan Christians, and not only maintained their faith, but actively persecuted their Catholic Roman subjects. I should perhaps pause for a second to clarify what I mean by Catholic. The term Catholic comes from a Greek word meaning universal. So in the time of Justinian, if someone had used the word Catholic, they would have meant the mainstream, legitimate, imperially backed church. This is the same church that I mean when I refer to believers who were orthodox. I know this may be confusing because of our modern distinction between Greek Orthodox Christians and Roman Catholics, but in the 530s we are a long way from those descriptions. So when I talk about Catholics, I mean all Christians who weren't Arians or Nestorians or some other definitive sect. The reason I keep using the term Orthodox is only to differentiate those who subscribed to the belief system as laid out at the Council of Chalcedon with the Monophysites who questioned it. 
But at this stage, a monophysite was still a Catholic, because despite all the arguing, they had not been condemned as heretical. I hope that all makes sense. Successive Vandal rulers had changed their official position as regards their Catholic subjects. Some persecuted, some tolerated. As you'll recall from episode 18, the part Roman King Hilderic had made such pro-Catholic overtures that his fellow Vandals feared that he might lead their kingdom back to the Empire. His cousin Gelimer seized power in 530, imprisoned Hilderic, and told Justinian to mind his own business. This was a red rag to an emperor who was determined to both restore the former boundaries of the Roman Empire and bring one Christian doctrine to all his people. Adding to the demand for action were the community of African refugees now resident at Constantinople. Many had fled during the persecutions, and some bore scars or mutilations as a result. Once the dust had settled on the Nika revolts, Justinian gathered his advisers and told them of his plans to retake Africa. Procopius tells us that the majority of Justinian's cabinet were opposed to any military campaign. The eternal peace with Persia had just been signed, and it wasn't cheap. The city was in ruins, and to rebuild it would also cost a huge amount. Most of the consistory were afraid of contradicting the emperor's wishes, but John the Cappadocian, so favoured for his outspokenness, voiced their concerns. As Praetorian prefect, and essentially Justinian's treasurer, he pointed out the obvious. A campaign against the Vandals was likely to fail, cause further conflict with an angry Vandal kingdom as a result, and would of course be massively expensive. He reminded everyone of the Emperor Leo's disastrous armada of 468, which had seen so much blood and treasure sunk without a trace. However, Justinian would not be moved. He was not insensible to the concerns raised, though, and prepared an expedition far smaller than the all-out assault which Leo had ordered. Around 16,000 troops were assembled, far smaller than the anticipated size of Vandal forces, with 10,000 infantry and 6,000 cavalry, including Huns and heralds. Belisarius had shown at the Battle of Dara that he could defeat a much larger force with well-trained men and some deft tactics. Now he would be tested on a grander scale. He was given overall command of not just the army, but the fleet which would transport them. 500 ships were prepared to carry men and supplies, guarded by 92 dromons, the smallest class of warships, manned by 20,000 sailors. As the fleet gathered outside Constantinople, many looked on, fearing that they would never see these men again. But three facts were unknown to the residents of the city, which were about to play right into Justinian's hands. The first was a revolt in Tripolitania, fomented by imperial messages which threw off the Vandal government. 
This was the area east of Carthage, modern Tripoli, in Libya. The area was thinly populated, and so may not have seemed immediately important to the Vandal king. However, it meant that the invasion fleet would be able to land on a friendly shore. Before Gelimer could react, though, a second revolt blew up on the island of Sardinia. The governor proclaimed himself independent of Carthage and offered submission to the emperor in hope of some aid. He wouldn't get any, but he did provide the perfect distraction. Gelimer hadn't learnt of Justinian's plans and dispatched 120 ships and 5,000 men to bring the island back under his control. The third fact was that the Vandals were no longer the force they had once been. Over half a century of enjoying their lush African estates and the warm sun had loosened their grip on power. The men of fighting age were spread out across their towns, and their fighting style hadn't developed since the days when they had driven out the Romans. The stars seemed to be aligning for Justinian. He was still on friendly terms with Amalasuntha, regent for the young king of the Goths in Italy. She placed the harbours of Sicily at the emperor's disposal, leaving the path to Carthage open for assault. In June 533, the fleet stood ready and received a blessing from the patriarch. On board with Belisarius were his wife Antonina and Procopius, whose first-hand accounts once again give us a fascinating insight into what happened next. Things didn't get off to the best start, as two drunken Huns killed another soldier and Belisarius was forced to hang them. The fleet then had to put in at Methone in southern Greece because John the Cappadocian, economising all the way, had supplied bread to the army which had been baked using one of the bathhouse furnaces rather than a proper bakery. The mouldy dough caused 500 soldiers to fall ill. By September, the fleet had reached Sicily. Belisarius had been anxious throughout the journey, expecting the Vandals to attack them at any moment. Once safely ashore, he was amazed to learn that the Vandal fleet was in Sardinia, and that Gelimer seemed completely unaware of his approach. Seizing the opportunity, he immediately pushed the fleet to land at Caput Varda, something like 140 miles to the east of Carthage. You can follow all of the action on the brilliant map that I've posted at thehistoryofbyzantium.wordpress.com, and yet again, it's the amazing Constantinus Placidus who put this one together for Wikipedia. Upon reaching the shore, some men pillaged the local farms for food. Again, Belisarius had to discipline them. He told them that they were in Africa to liberate the Roman people from Galama. An army of 15,000 would need 30 tons of grain, 13 tons of fodder, and about 30,000 gallons of water a day. Belisarius told them that they were going to buy the supplies they needed from the locals at a fair price and that way ensure their goodwill toward the invading army. It was about 14 days' journey to Carthage 
and so the army moved slowly along the coast, with the fleet following beside. At the first town they came to, Belisarius's policy paid dividends, as he was quickly welcomed by the Roman Africans, who offered to sell their goods to the hungry soldiers. Belisarius also distributed a letter from Justinian, declaring that the purpose of the invasion was simply to restore Hilderic and liberate the people from the tyrant Gelimer. The diplomatic campaign worked well, as the army made steady progress along the coast road. Scouts were sent ahead under John the Armenian, while the company of Huns protected the flanks. By now, news had reached Gelimer, who was away from Carthage at the time. He quickly sent word to his brother Amatus at Carthage, giving instructions to kill Hilderic and the other prisoners and bring all the troops in the city south to stop the invasion. The Vandals could probably muster 30,000 soldiers, and they were largely a cavalry force who fought in the traditional Vandal manner, lightly armoured with lance and sword. They were not skilled with bow or javelin as the Byzantines were, and of course 5,000 of these troops were away in Sardinia, but Gelimer could certainly match, if not outnumber, the invasion force. The king set a trap for the Byzantines, correctly predicting that they would stick to the coast road and aiming to catch them in a valley at the tenth milestone from Carthage, Ad Decimum. On one side were rocky hills, on the other a salt plain. Gelimer instructed his brother to meet the Byzantines head-on once they entered the pass. He would sweep down on their rear, and one of his nephews would lead another 2,000 men across the salt plains. The plan required good timing to succeed, though. Belisarius had no idea he was about to be trapped, but fortunately for him, Amatus arrived at the pass early, presumably to scout the location. He was surprised to find John the Armenian's advanced guard already there. John's far better cavalry won the skirmish, killing Amatus and routing his men. The fleeing soldiers caused chaos in the badly organised army that was marching out from Carthage, who were then soon set upon by John's pursuing cavalry. The troops sent round to the salt plains fared just as badly. They now ran into the Huns guarding the Byzantine flank. Although they were outnumbered three to one, the Huns still slaughtered the Vandals and put them to flight. The Vandals simply had no defence against the composite bow. Gelimer mistimed his arrival too, reaching the pass before Belisarius did. Another Byzantine scouting party was easily driven off, and if Gelimer had charged headlong after these scouts, it's possible he could have swept Belisarius from the field, as his attack would have caught the rest of the Byzantines unaware. Or, if the Vandals had turned back to Carthage, they would have cut off John's forces and possibly captured the Byzantine fleet, which had been separated from the army by the rocky hills around Ad Decimum. Instead, though, when Gelimer reached the valley, he found the dead body of his brother and wept. He stopped his army there 
and aimed to bury Amatus nearby. The Byzantine scouts had quickly found their commander, and Belisarius seized on the chance to attack the stationary Gelimer. The Vandals were not lined up ready for battle when the Byzantines arrived and put them to flight. They didn't make for Carthage either, but fled into the countryside. A large part of the Vandal army survived, but the road to their capital was now open. The victory had been won by the cavalry alone. Belisarius had not kept his army together, and the infantry only arrived after the action was complete. It was around the middle of September when the victorious Byzantines entered Carthage. Once again, Belisarius's major concern was to keep his men from looting the city. Once discipline was secure, he led his men in to meet the cheering citizens. The Catholics inside took the opportunity to kick the Arian clergy out and reoccupy their churches. Belisarius gave orders for ditches to be dug and for repairs to be made to the city's walls, and once his day's labours were complete, he was able to seat himself on Gelimer's throne, surrounded by his officers, and enjoy a feast that had been prepared for the Vandal king. Belisarius's smaller army could now rest easy behind Carthage's walls and plan their next move. Although their victory owed much to the superior training and skills of the cavalry, there was a good deal of luck involved too. Gelimer's plan was a good one, but it had been poorly executed, and the king himself had made blunder after blunder, which played into his enemy's hands. It's interesting to speculate what would have happened if Hilderic hadn't been executed. Gelimer had naturally killed his rival, so that he couldn't be restored to power. However, imagine if Belisarius had marched into Carthage, and Hilderic was there waiting for him. Technically, the Byzantines would have restored the rightful king, and would either have had to fight for him, or leave. Perhaps Gelimer would have been overthrown, and the Vandals reunited as a people. It seems pretty clear that Justinian didn't commit precious resources just to protect Hilderic's right to rule. So it sure would have been awkward if Belisarius reached the throne room, only to be told by Hilderic, thanks for all you've done, but I'll take it from here. Out in the countryside, Gelimer restored order to his fleeing army and moved west. By December, he had reunited with his other brother, Sazo, who had returned from successfully quelling the rebellion in Sardinia. They marched to Carthage and cut the aqueducts. The Vandals didn't feel they had the strength to besiege the city, but they were determined to make life as difficult as possible for Belisarius by preventing supplies coming in by land. Gallimer also sent men into the city to make contact with sympathetic citizens who he hoped could persuade the Arian troops in the Byzantine army to desert. Although none of them did, Belisarius became aware that his company of Huns could not be trusted. Their loyalty was highly questionable, and it seemed like they might switch sides should the Vandals gain the upper hand. Gelimer camped some 20 miles west of Carthage at Tricameron. 
The camp included a lot of those who had fled from the Byzantines, along with their property, wives, and children. By mid-December, Belisarius decided that it was time to attempt battle. He felt a decisive blow could scatter the Vandals, and had decided that he would prefer to deal with mutinous soldiers out in the field, rather than letting them spend their days eyeing the city gates. Again, though, Belisarius didn't keep his forces together, and allowed his cavalry to get far ahead of the infantry. Battle was therefore joined without full force. But again, the superior Byzantine cavalry was too much for the Vandals. Clad in chain mail and firing volley after volley of arrow into the enemy centre, the Vandals had no comeback. Sazo was killed, and his men could only attempt meagre sorties before being driven back. On the third occasion that the Byzantines made a charge at them, the Vandals broke and fled. As they did so, the Huns finally joined the battle and helped to cut down some of the fleeing men. As the Vandals scattered, the Byzantines came across their camp. After months of self-denial, the army engorged itself on the people and treasure they found there. Procopius notes with alarm that discipline was abandoned, and had the Vandals managed to rally and return, Belisarius's men would have been cut to pieces. But that didn't happen. Gelimer was a broken man, and rode away as fast as he could. His men followed suit, with many fleeing for the sanctuary of churches. Once again, Belisarius had been handed victory by a combination of superior troops and his opponent's blunders. Of course, victory is all that would matter back in Constantinople, and news of the success thrilled Justinian. Belisarius led his army to the city of Hippo, where they collected the Vandal royal treasury, which modern estimates guess would have paid for the whole campaign. Other towns were easily secured, as you may recall, the Vandals had destroyed the city walls of every other major town to prevent rebellion. The islands of the Mediterranean were scooped up too by the imperial fleet, and the Byzantine navy also took possession of two important forts on the African coast near the Straits of Gibraltar. The interior of modern-day Morocco was beyond recovery. Justinian was also about to discover that restoring all of Roman Africa would be far harder than just kicking the Vandals out. The Moorish tribes had long enjoyed freedom from imperial rule and had improved on that position during the Vandal occupation. They weren't going to bow the knee to Justinian either and prepared to further harass the settled communities. Meanwhile, Gelimer fled to Mount Papua, where he and his supporters could hide from the Byzantines. At the foot of the mountain, Faras and his heralds, that we met at the Battle of Dara, waited him out. The cold winter months didn't improve the mood of either side, and Faras sent a note to Gelimer, urging him to give up. Gelimer wouldn't do it, but he did ask for a sponge, a loaf of bread, and a lyre. This odd request was granted, so that Gelimer could bathe his swollen eyes, eat some baked bread, and compose a song to his tribulations. 
by March, he finally surrendered, after being assured of his honourable treatment. Many of his soldiers were offered the same deal, and were told that they would be shipped back to Constantinople and enrolled in the imperial armies. Despite his total victory, Belisarius was not popular amongst some of his sub-commanders. Along with the messages Justinian received about the war came a secret note from a cabal of officers telling him that Belisarius was planning to set himself up as king of Africa. Justinian didn't believe these claims, but left Belisarius a small test by writing to him, offering him the choice of returning to Constantinople or staying in the recovered province. Belisarius wisely chose to go home. It's worth speculating why Belisarius was able to command the respect of his soldiers, but not his officers. If you'll recall, the same problems were present after the Battle of Dara during the defeat at Callinicum. The suspicion of Procopius is that it was Belisarius's wife Antonina who was the problem. She was at least ten years older than her husband, and like Theodora, had been a performer in the theatre. While her exploits were not as colourful as those of the Empress, she had had a number of children before she married Belisarius and unlike Theodora, she seems not to have changed her promiscuous ways after the wedding. But Belisarius clearly loved her, and took her on campaign with him, perhaps to keep an eye on her. She was clearly a woman of strong opinion, and Procopius credits her for ordering extra water to be stored on the ships during the voyage to Africa. However, it's possible that other officers looked down on Belisarius for his attitude to his wife. The suggestion being that a man who can't control his woman was not fit to lead men. It's also possible that Belisarius's favoured position in the army incited jealousy, or that his strict discipline had irritated those who had seen plenty of opportunities for plunder. For now, though, Belisarius was the second man in the empire, and in the spring of 534, he returned to Constantinople as a conquering hero. Justinian's desire to restore Roman traditions led him to grant his general an honour which had been the preserve of emperors for five centuries, a Roman triumph. The procession began at his home rather than the city gates, and he was not allowed to ride a chariot through the streets, but simply walked instead. Behind him, though, were the most attractive vandal captives, along with Gelimer in his kingly robes, and beside them were cartloads of loot brought back from Africa. The prize find being the famous menorah, taken by Titus from the Temple of Jerusalem in AD 70, which the Vandals had seized during the sack of Rome in 455. To the relic-loving Byzantines, this was a great moment and confirmation of God's support for his people. Justinian would eventually allow the menorah to be handed over to the Jews and taken back to Jerusalem. The thought that the three cities which had once housed it had now all fallen may have lingered in his mind. Back to the triumph, though, and Belisarius now entered the Hippodrome to the adulation of the crowds before reaching the Kathisma, 
where Justinian and Theodora looked down. Gelimer's robes were torn from his shoulders. Then he, the other prisoners, and Belisarius all prostrated themselves before the imperial couple. Gelimer is said to have quoted a line from Ecclesiastes upon seeing the spectacle of imperial majesty. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Gelimer actually had a good deal to be grateful for. His ancestors would surely have been executed for invading Roman lands. But he was now a foreign king who had simply broken a treaty. The Byzantines kept their word, and he was given estates in Galatia, where he and his remaining family and friends could live out their lives in peace. The few thousand Vandal soldiers who remained were now enlisted on the rolls of the Eastern Army, where they would be known as Justinian's Vandals. I think it's worth making two points about the reconquest of Africa, which are often discussed in the history books. The first is that it's often taken for granted that the Roman Empire had reached some sort of natural point of dissipation when the West fell. In the broad sweep of history, I think it's fair to say that the idea persists that the Empire was on its last legs, and that if the Goths, Franks and Vandals hadn't invaded, then someone else would have. The ease with which Justinian retook Africa suggests something different. With its political stability secured, the East had by now made a full recovery from all the blights which the 3rd and 4th centuries had brought with them. The professional Byzantine army had learnt new techniques from Attila's Huns, as Roman armies had always done. And now with one army, Justinian was able to push the Vandals out and retake a major province. What that suggests to me is that one of the major reasons the West fell was all the little political dislocations which the History of Rome podcast chronicled. The Empire didn't collapse simply because of long-term forces working against it. All those short-term problems, which Stilicho or Aetius dealt with, were key to the way things turned out. If the lesson we take from this is that a key battle or leader, here or there, really can change history, then it's worth saying that if Gelimer had made better choices, or had a little more luck, he might have crushed Belisarius, and Justinian probably would have abandoned his dreams of retaking the West. Speaking of which, the other point I'd like to make is on the question of whether that was Justinian's plan all along. I have no doubt that Justinian wanted to reconquer the West. I think if he'd had the men, he'd have asked them to march all the way to Hadrian's Wall, as later episodes will make clear. But the real question is if Gelimer hadn't imprisoned Hilderic, would Justinian have invaded Africa? It's hard to imagine the pretext for doing so, and perhaps Justinian would have attempted to make Africa a client kingdom and pushed for closer trade, cultural, and religious policies. What seems clear is that Belisarius's swift victories fed the emperor's ambitions, and if he wasn't thinking of starting a war of reconquest before the African campaign, he certainly was now. Belisarius was made consul for the next year, 
and Justinian already had a new assignment in mind for him. That will have to wait, though, because in two weeks' time, we will be in Constantinople, seeing what domestic projects Justinian pushed ahead with as the city was reconstructed in the wake of the Nika Revolt. It's also time for me to remind you that the music for this podcast comes from musicalley.com, and to say thank you all for listening, and for your feedback on iTunes, at Facebook, and at the History of Byzantium. .wordpress.com Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.